remind you that uh, this, starting this morning, we're entering a three-week sermon series, Choosing Generosity. There's a lot in the Bible and a lot out there in life to teach us about generosity. And I want to read to you a scripture this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Now, friends, I want to report on this surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia province. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there and saw it for myself. They gave offerings of what they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out with the poor, uh, the relief of poor Christians. This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us. The other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. That's what prompted us to ask Titus to bring the relief offering to your attention so that what was so well begun could be finished up. You do so well in so many things. You trust God, you're articulate, you're insightful, you're passionate, you love us. Now, do your best in this too. I'm not trying to order you around against your will, but by bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I'm hoping to bring the best out of you. You're familiar with the generosity of our Master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, He gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. So here's what I think. The best thing you can do right now is to finish what you started last year and not let those good intentions grow stale. Your heart's been in the right place all along. You've got got what it takes to finish it up, so go to it. Once the commitment is clear, you do what you can, not what you can't. The heart regulates the hands. This isn't so others can take it easy while you sweat it out. No, you're shoulder to shoulder with them all the way. Your surplus matching their deficit, their surplus matching your deficit. In the end, you come out even as it is written, nothing left over to the one with the most, nothing lacking to the one with the least. God's word. A pastor was um, preparing his annual stewardship sermon. He was giving a lot of thought to it, and he sat down with the church organist, that was his staff, and uh, he said, now here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to preach on stewardship, and he said, at the end of my sermon, I'm going to give a challenge that uh, everyone present who's willing to increase their annual contribution next year by 10% uh, to please stand up, and he said, when I give that challenge for a 10% increase in giving, and invite people to stand up, you play some appropriate music. And the organist said, well, what would you consider appropriate? And he said, the star-spangled banner. (laughs) There are lots of ways to motivate giving. That's not what I have in mind. Speaking of organists, uh, I want to tell you a story about Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie was not an organist, as far as I know, but uh, he grew up poor, uh, didn't have much, but he became very wealthy. He became one of the magnates of of American uh, history, 
uh, in the steel industry, made a fortune, a bucket load, buckets loads of money. And uh, in fact, at a relatively young age, he sold his uh, steel business and he decided he needed to start giving his money away. Uh, and the reason he started giving his money away is that he was afraid of what wealth would do to him. He was suspicious that wealth would destroy his character. So he started giving his money away. And he endowed, he, he was very shrewd, very thought it out very carefully and creatively. He endowed in these United States 2,811 libraries. That's why so many little towns all across America have Carnegie Public Libraries. 2,811 public libraries. And what a lot of people don't know is that he gave away to churches 7,689 organs. Amazing. Now, it was Carnegie's statement that one of the reasons he did that was to lessen the pain of the sermons. You think that's funny? I don't think it's funny. How come you think it's funny? Generosity. What an interesting word. Generosity. The more you think about that word, the more you start seeing uh, articles online and in the newspaper, uh, the more you think about that word, the more you read the Bible and you see stories of generosity or the lack thereof. Generosity is a powerful theme. And we're not talking just this morning, uh, this morning just about uh, financial generosity, although that's a piece of it. Uh, we're talking about a generosity of spirit, a generosity of attitude that, that forgives grudges, a uh, generosity of spirit that doesn't always keep score, that doesn't always criticize, that isn't always negative, that isn't always judging other people. A generosity of spirit that, that actually sits down and listens to what a person has to say. A generosity with time. A generosity in estate planning so that after we're gone from this earth, uh, our generosity just keeps on rolling. And generosity of talents. Sharing our giftedness with the church and with the world. Jonas Salk was the physician that developed the vaccine that wiped out polio, that brought polio under control. And in case you are fairly recent to planet Earth, meaning you're not very old, maybe you don't know that in the first half of the 20th century, polio was the Ebola of the day. People were terrified. People were dying. People were crippled. People were just randomly, it seemed, attacked with this terrible disease. And Jonas Salk developed the vaccine that brought it under control. And in the mid-1950s, he was conducting a press conference as the, as the United States was celebrating the elimination of polio as a disease that was, that was, uh, it was no longer running rampant. And a reporter asked him, do you plan to patent the vaccine? And Jonas Salk said, what do you mean? patent the vaccine. He said, could you patent the sun that rises in the east and sets in the west every day? This gift, he said, belongs to all humankind. We're not going to patent it. See, generosity. 
Generosity. There is so much that we enjoy today that's because of the generosity of other people. There's so much that we experience today that's because of the generosity of those who are alive today or those who've lived a long time ago. To paraphrase uh, a great preacher, George Buttrick, uh, this concept of the self-made man or the self-made woman is a joke. Anybody who says to you, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, just laugh in their face. There's no such critter. Buttrick said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, we eat what other hands have harvested, we wear what other people have stitched together. We didn't make all of our clothes. We drive down roads that other people have built. We breathe the air of liberty because of what veterans have done to protect our freedoms. What an appropriate thought on the Sunday closest to Veterans Day. I mean, everything we experience as a blessing because of someone else. We didn't do this ourselves. Generosity is such a powerful concept. Now, generosity is contagious. You can catch it from other people. You hang around generous people and you're likely to get more generous or more miserable, I might add, Generosity is contagious. Generosity is habit-forming. The more you practice generosity, the more you like how it feels, and it's sort of addictive, it makes you want to be more generous. And another way to say that is that there is a generosity muscle that can be flexed. And the generosity muscle has memory. And the more you use that generosity muscle, the more you want to use it, and the more it's strengthened, and and it just sort of grows, and it's a beautiful concept. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the Corinthian Christians. Paul was going around collecting an offering for a church that was in trouble. Back east, in the original church in Jerusalem, the believers were starving to death. There was a There was a famine in the land, and Christians were poor. They were starving. The Apostle Paul thought, I can accomplish two things at once. I can unify believers, Jews and Gentiles, who've come into the faith, and we can also feed a lot of hungry mouths. I'm just going from church to church, and I'm collecting an offering. Now, when Paul got to Corinth, down in the south of Greece, or when he wrote them the letter, rather, uh, he was trying to be delicate, diplomatic, but also straightforward. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't giving quite as well. And he said, I want you to know what the churches up north are doing. Very diplomatic. He said, I want you to know up north around Thessalonica and Philippi, up in Macedonia, the churches are very generous. He said, they're poor. They're very, very poor. They, they're being persecuted. And they've got a lot of problems. In fact, uh, he says... Uh, The message translates it, uh, they're incredibly happy, though desperately poor. Great combination. Incredibly happy, though desperately poor. They're just, they're joyous, even though they they don't have much. And Paul is saying, by contrast, you know, down here in the south in Corinth, you're not persecuted. Down here in the south in Corinth, uh, you don't really have that many 
problems. And down here in Corinth, um, you're pretty well off compared to people in other regions. But he said, you're not joyful. Look inside your hearts and look around your church. You're pretty joyless. He said, I'd really like you to learn to flex your generosity muscle. He said, I think you'd get over yourselves. I think you'd, I think you'd be happier. There'd be more joy in your lives if you'd learn to flex those generosity muscles the way they're doing up north. And you'd find some joy. Let's listen in particularly in verse 2. He says, uh, these people up north are going through a severe ordeal of affliction, and yet there's abundant joy. There's extreme poverty, and yet this wealth of generosity. He's saying they're down to the depths. They're down to the very depths of poverty, and yet there is this bubbling over, overflowing, open-handedness and open-heartedness. He said the two don't go together. They're in the depths of poverty, and yet there's this amazing generosity of spirit, open hands and open hearts. And then he says... Uh, in verse 4, they practically begged us for the privilege of helping out. See, that's how addictive generosity is. The more you do it, the more you want to do it. He said, they, they've kind of gotten hooked on generosity. They're excited about sharing. So they're practically begging us for the privilege. And one way you could translate that Greek word privilege is pleasure. They're practically begging us for the pleasure of being more generous. They want to give some more. Interesting. Interesting that, that they see it as a pleasure. Uh, I knew a man several years ago. He told me this story. He said, uh, my wife and I were young, pastoring a church. And he said, uh, had small children. He said, a lady in our, in our church just started giving the children gifts. We thought at first, that's really nice. She kept giving gifts. And finally, he said, uh, I went to that lady and I said, ma'am, we really appreciate all the kind things you've been doing for our, our children. But he said, would you please stop buying expensive gifts for our children? The lady looked at him. She sort of blinked. And she said, I want to tell you something. I don't have any family. I don't have any children. Are you going to deprive me of the joy that I'm receiving from sharing and being generous with your children. And he said, that's when I realized that one of the noblest experiences of the human heart is the experience of generosity. And that no one should rob another person of that rush, that high, that pleasure, of that noble experience of being generous. And uh, the poet uh, E.A. Robinson says it well. He says there are two kinds of gratitude. The sudden kind we feel for what we take and the larger kind we feel for what we give. It's true, you know. There's a rush that comes when somebody gives you something big, something expensive, something thoughtful, something nice but it's not anything like the rush you get from giving something costly, something meaningful that somebody will really be blessed by. And that's what Robinson is saying. He said there's a bigger rush, a larger kind of feeling for what we give. And let's just face it. 
I mean, let's just face it. Generous people are happier people. Stingy people are never happy. Generous people are happy people, and there's even scientific proof now that generous people are healthier. When people are generous with time volunteering, when people are generous with attention, thinking of others besides self, when people are generous with financial resources, that by and large, generous people are healthier people. And so Paul said, I want you to flex that generosity muscle because there's some growing that will just be really contagious and addictive for you if you can get in that zone. So what Paul did first in, uh, in, this, in this scripture was give the example of churches up north. Flex your generosity muscle, and I want to show you an example up north. But the second example is even more powerful uh, than the first. He said, not only the example of the churches up north, but uh, flex your generosity muscle by the example of Jesus. I want to show you this verse 9 that I read earlier. Uh, you are familiar with the generosity of our master Jesus Christ? Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. Paul said, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the story of the believer's life in a nutshell. That's what generosity is all wrapped up in one. I think it was William Barclay, the first time I ran across this thought, he's probably not the only one who said it, in his commentary on the scripture, Barclay says, you know, God's generosity didn't start on Good Friday on the cross. God's generosity did not start uh, with Jesus hanging there as, as God poured out his heart of love. God's generosity didn't even start with the Christmas story with the baby in the manger. Barclay says, the generosity of God started in heaven, in God's heart. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's always been God's nature to be generous. And God was always willing to give everything to show his love for us. God is a generous God. Generous is probably the most comprehensive thing you could say about God. And when we get saved, when we get into the family, when we start following Jesus, Scripture says we are born of God. We experience a mystical birth where we actually mystically take on God's DNA. The imprint of God's nature is in us just waiting to be acted out so that there is in every believer generosity just waiting to get out. There is in each of us that imprint of God's divine nature just waiting for an opportunity to be exercised and flexed. God is generous. And by nature, we as children practice generosity. It's our, it's our calling and it's in our nature. Now, Paul says something else in the scripture that doesn't get preached on or talked about very much. It's uh, not quite as dramatic and fun. But in verses 10 and 11, he said, In this matter of giving, I have some advice for you. What you've started, go ahead and finish. Evidently, the Corinthians had started an offering, 
something interrupted them, some kind of something, a crisis. Their attention got diverted. But Paul very distinctly says in verses 10 and 11, you've started it. I know you have good intentions, but now you need to put feet to those intentions. You need to do it. He was saying very clearly, intentions are not enough. We have to sooner or later act on our intentions. I had a member of this church tell me about a stewardship campaign this church had years and years ago, long before I ever came as pastor. Uh, this was back in the day, by the way, when they visited every home with a commitment card. You think you have it tough listening to a stewardship sermon this morning. It was really bad back in the day. Because I don't know if this was a building campaign, capital campaign, or whether it was just the subscribing the annual budget, but they would visit every home of every member with a card, visit about what was needed, and invite you to make a commitment. You think you have it tough, boy. That's how they used to do it back in the old days. And so this gentleman who was visiting with me, a very active member of our church, said he remembers making this one visit of a family. They weren't very active in church. Uh, he made his appeal. He, he kind of laid it out there. And the, the, family, the, the, the man's response was this. Well, I'll tell you what. We don't plan on giving any money this year, but if we did, it'd sure be a lot. Don't you love that? Put me down for $1,000. We're not going to give anything, but if we did, it'd sure be a lot. Well, thank you very much. See, that's kind of what Paul was dealing with with Corinthians. Uh, they, they say, we got good intentions, Paul. One of these days, we're going to get around to it. Paul said, put some feet to your intentions. Put some action to what you're talking about. Now, I don't know about you, but, it, but I know in my life, I have a lot of good intentions, and in my head, I always do them all. Have you noticed that? In my head, I'm a really good person. In my head, I'm really generous. But sometimes when I take a good hard look at objective reality, what I do doesn't measure up with what I intend, what I think, how I see myself. Is it just me, or do you have that experience too? You know, in my mind, I think we're pretty generous with our checkbook. Giving to the Lord, giving to missions, giving to the kingdom. And then I get out the, the check register or I look online at the stubs in the laptop and, or maybe the end of year statement before taxes and I go, well, you know, maybe reality doesn't measure up with this concept I have in my head. And, and it may not be about money. It may be that you consider yourself a really good listener in your mind. You're very generous with your attention, but the feedback you get from other people is that you're not a very good listener. Or maybe you fancy in your mind that you are very generous with your time, but you keep a daily log for a, a week or so. You just enter in your notes or you go back through your iPhone and appointments and you begin to realize how much time you spend on yourself and how little you give to the kingdom in terms of time, or a hundred different ways to just really get what's in our head and our, what we think about ourselves lined up with what we really do. That's what Paul's talking about. And as I thought about this sermon series on generosity, there are just so many great stories uh, in Scripture and, and uh, in human experience. I, I wanted to reacquaint us with Francis of Assisi. 
Now, Francis Litt was born in uh, 1182, uh, and he's always been famous, but he's particularly famous now because the current pope took his name. And not only took his name, but Pope Francis really wants to live out some of those values of Francis of Assisi. Francis was born in, a, uh, in 1182 into relative wealth uh, in the village, uh, the city of Assisi in Italy. He was born to merchant uh, family, a very comfortable living. Uh, he got his education. He loved adventure. He wanted to be a knight. He was made a knight, and he thought his career was all the way up the ladder. And then one day he was riding through the countryside and uh, he came upon this beggar, a leper. For some reason, Francis dismounted and gave the leper his coat. And then nudged by the Holy Spirit, Francis reached down and kissed that diseased leper on the face. And the moment he did that, his life changed. He experienced a transformation where suddenly he reimagined his life in light of the gospel of Jesus. He reimagined his plans, his dreams, his values, his priorities, his hopes. And he gave away all of his dad's wealth that had been given to him, took the vow of poverty, and gave his life to renewing the church of his day. And his work is still going on among Catholics and non-Catholics, renewing the church, because he obeyed the nudge of the Spirit, and he kissed a leper. And to reimagine our lives, to reimagine generosity in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're familiar, aren't you, with the generosity of our master Jesus Christ? Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. Generosity. Let's pray. Open our hearts, God, to all that the gospel means to us and to our possessions today. Open our lives to your generous call. With your heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment, I want to prepare us for this time of response. When we stand and sing, it's not a closing chorus. It's a, it's a chorus of response. It's a time of response. Maybe you uh, plan to join our church this morning. We welcome you to come when we stand and sing. Maybe this morning you're ready to trust in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. This generous God loves you generously this morning and is willing to wipe away all your sins and to give you a brand new forever future. This generous God has paid the debt. This generous God has new life for you. And if you're ready this morning to trust Jesus Christ, some of us are here at the front to pray with you, to answer questions, to help you, and to help you make that step. And maybe there are just some who want to come for prayer 
Whatever it is that the Spirit might be speaking about, we invite you to just be ready and obedient. God bless you.